0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will study tonight Psalm 33 from the book of Psalms. Each Psalm actually has a title, but this Psalm has no title in the Hebrew version. Or indication of authorship. However, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew that was done almost 300 years before Christ, the introduction, sorry, the title of this psalm, a psalm of David. So, the Septuagint assigned this psalm to David the Prophet there is no mention of time or place to help us to know when or where or the occasion of this psalm, why it was written. This psalm actually intended to be a hymn of praise to celebrate the power and the wisdom and the mercies of the Lord. It is used in the Old Testament, in the liturgical prayer, in the temple. And some scholars actually say that this psalm is written as part of Psalm 32, the preceding psalm. As if 32 and 33 are the same, one psalm. Why? The last verse in Psalm 32, Rejoice, O righteous! And shout for joy and be glad. So, Psalm 33 begins by repeating the call to praise with which Psalm 32 closed. But in Psalm 33, it gives us the reasons why God is worthy to be praised. In this psalm, the psalmist appealed to the righteous, to the godly people, to praise God. Because it is proper, it is the right thing, it is fitting to do so in the view of who he is and what he has done. It's exactly in the divine liturgy, when Abuna says, let us praise the Lord, let us give thanks to the Lord. And the people respond, it is meet and right it's meat and right meat, it is the right thing, it is fitting, it is the proper thing to praise the Lord. Then Abuna start explaining why, why it is the right thing, because he created heaven and earth and the sea and all things that's therein, etc., etc. So, the same idea in this psalm He is calling us to praise the Lord in the view of who God is and what he has done. To praise the power and mighty deeds of the Creator. He is calling us to praise the power and the mighty deeds of the Creator. And we should actually praise him in a manner suitable to his greatness. That's why praises like vesper praises, midnight praises, morning praises are an essential part of our service, of our worship. God is worthy of the best in expressions of praise as well as in all we do for him. He's worthy definitely of the best. This Psalm is 22 verses from verse 1 to 3 praise the great God 4 and 5 praise Him for the greatness of His character, for who He is 6 and 7 praise Him for His majesty in creation 8 and 9 a call for all the earth to fear the Lord 10 to 11 to 12 praise Him for His sovereign rule 13 to 15, the greatness of God over each person, each individual. 16 and 17, material strength is just an illusion. There is no salvation in material strength. But in verse 18 and 19, God is the true protector of his people, not the material strength. 20 and 21, a zealous expression of confidence and the last verse, an earnest prayer. So let's start by verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. As I told you, if you see verse 32, the last verse, last verse in Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy all you upright in heart. Then 33, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. That's why some scholars said it's one psalm. Or Psalm 33 is an elaboration on uh, why we should rejoice and be glad in the Lord, as Psalm 32 said. So Psalm 32 ended by calling on the righteous to sing praises to God. This psalm, the first three verses, seemed to be almost written as an elaboration on verse 11. Why we should rejoice? Why we should be glad? Why we shout for joy? So, in verse 1, it begins with a call for the righteous people of God to rejoice and praise. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. The psalmist primarily referred to those among God's people who walked rightly. He did not call everyone, (coughs) but he is calling only the righteous why he is calling only the righteous because only the righteous are rejoicing in the Lord the righteous rejoice in the Lord but the unrighteous rejoice in the world rejoice in the pleasures of the world St. Augustine says rejoice O you righteous not in yourselves for this that, that is not safe but rejoice in the Lord these pray the Lord who submit themselves unto the Lord. So the righteous who submit themselves unto the Lord praise the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord means rejoice in his presence, not in his temporal blessing. That's why we saw righteous people like abuna Naiostos al-Antoni, when he entered the church, He wouldn't like to leave the church because he is rejoicing in the presence of God. Some people rejoice in the temporal blessing from God if God blessed them with money, with position, But the righteous rejoice in His presence. Like Mary, who sat at the feet of the Lord, rejoicing in His presence. Rejoice in the temporal things is mortal. Rejoice in sin is perishable But rejoice in the Lord Is eternal Then he said Praise from the upright Praise from the righteous Is beautiful Is beautiful means It is befitting It is suitable It is proper It is befitting for the believer Who practices the godly life To enjoy The presence of God and praise the Lord praising pleases God and creates sense of appreciation do you remember when the Lord healed the ten leper men and only one returned he said where is the nine so praise pleases the Lord St. Ambrose observed that there is no greater defense against Satan than spiritual joy. When we rejoice in the Lord, Satan cannot attack us. When we rejoice in his presence, Satan cannot approach us. Then in verse 2, he said, praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings the psalmist mentioned this instrument harp and instrument with ten strings because they were used commonly in the public worship of God in the tabernacle so David exhorts God's people to praise him using musical instrument however in the New Testament there are different opinions about using such musical instrument in worship. Some say the musical instrument belonged only to Old Testament and not to the New Testament. But if you study the early church father almost all of them objected the use of musical instrument in churches and they said the most important instrument is the heart for example St. Augustine says praise the Lord presenting unto him your bodies as a living sacrifice as St. Paul said in Romans 12 let your members be servants to the love of God so show your love to God through your members. When I walk to help somebody, when I travel to visit a prisoner. So, here the organs of my body should be servants to the love of God and love of my neighbor. In which are kept both three and seven commandments. So he's saying, the ten uh, strings, when he said uh, instrument of ten strings, the ten strings are the Ten Commandments. So when you keep the Ten Commandments, you are praising God with the instrument of ten strings. According to Saint Didymus the Blind, he said, The harp in the harp tunes come from its lower extremity represent the body, which was created from earth. But the instrument of ten strings, the tunes come from its higher extremity, referring to the soul, soaring high up in heavenlies with the spirit of thanksgiving." So as if St. Didymus said, the harp represented the body, instrument of ten strings represented the soul, so when we worship the Lord and we praise Him, praise Him with my body when I lift up my hand in prayer, when I prostrate before the Lord. And also I praise Him with my soul. Then in verse 3 he said, Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. New song is repeated, is a repetitive theme in the book of Psalm, like in Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 149. And also, we read about it in the book of Revelation in heaven, in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 14, new song. So as if the psalmist is saying, that the people are to sing a new song, because the mercies of the Lord they have received. We read in the Lamentation, chapter 3, that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Since the mercies are new every morning, then our praise to the Lord should be new every morning, which means we ought to, to Sing a song of praise to God on daily basis So the new song Not a new lyrics, not a new music But means every day we praise the Lord It's a continuous song A continual song That's why for every day there is praises When actually you go and visit a monastery every day there is midnight praises they wake up at four in the morning and they do midnight praises daily it's a new song and then he said play skillfully with a shout of joy play skillfully with the best of your skills because God deserves the best that we have and with a shout of joy means from the depth of your heart. It is not that the Lord cannot hear us, but the nature for great joy is to express itself in its loudest manner. When a a person hears good news, he is shouting with joy. So shouting here because it is the natural expression of joy. Verse 4, now he is saying why, why we should praise the Lord, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth, so he is saying, praise God for the greatness of his character, greatness of his character, the first reason The word of the Lord is right Meaning what? Meaning the revealed will of God In the scripture Is in harmony and agreement With the eternal rule of right So what is revealed in the Bible Reflect exactly the eternal rule of right Which means the revealed word is true. Is true. And because of this, we praise the Lord. The word of the Lord is straight. Because of the faithfulness of all his promises. God is faithful. As we read in Psalm 111, All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. Whatever God says is right and is true And he does his work in truth Not with deceit And all his work is done in truth Not in deceit We are thankful That there is no contradiction In in the scripture or between the revealed Word of God and God himself as we read in Psalm in, in Romans chapter 7, the law, the law of God is holy, just and good. Some fathers said the word of the Lord here is Jesus Christ. The word is the Logos, the Son. So as if he's saying, For Jesus Christ is right, and all his work is done in truth. He is the word. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and life. So, he is the word, which is the truth, way, and life. And it follows, all his work is done in truth. As we read in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, through the son. So the psalmist kept thinking of the greatness of of God's character. He kept thinking about God's love for righteousness and justice, and His goodness is spread all over the earth. That's why in verse 5 he said, He, God, loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Righteous Righteousness means To do what's right, that's what righteousness is. And righteousness is the essential principle of justice. The psalmist rightly rejoiced that God is not without goodness. God is good. He loves righteousness. He loves justice and goodness is spread all over the earth and I want you to see here how he said the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord so the earth is full not only of the glory of God or of his riches but goodness goodness includes his mercy his loving kindness definitely the earth declares the glory of God and his wisdom But for us, his mercy and his loving kindness is the basis of our thankfulness when we acknowledge this. The Lord's love is evident in his works on earth. The overflowing kindness of God fills the earth. And St. Augustine said, throughout the whole world, Are sins forgiven unto men By the mercies of the Lord That's how The earth is full Of the mercies of the Lord Because In every single Area Every single inch In the world There are some people who are sinning And God is forgiving them And he said the, no, the earth, not mankind. He did not say the mankind is full of the goodness of the Lord. He said the earth, because God's mercies is not limited to man only, but God's mercies and goodness are over His works, over the animals, over everything, not only the human being. And I want you to notice Goodness of the Lord in Arabic Rahmat al-Rab, mercies of the Lord Verse 6 The word, By the word of the Lord The heaven Were made And all the host of them Like the stars By the breath of his mouth In verse 4 and 5 He said Praise him Because of the greatness of his character. Verse 6 and 7 praise him for his majesty in creation. God is to be praised. Not only because of his character. Not only because of his goodness. But also because of his greatness in creation. His greatness goes beyond his moral goodness verse 4 and 5 spoke about his moral goodness but in verse 6 and 7 it speaks about his power and his authority by his mere word the universe was created he said let it be light then there was light so in verse 7 verse 6 We can see the Holy Trinity. By the word of the Son of God, of the Lord, of the Father, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth, that's the Holy Spirit. So we can see the Holy Trinity in this verse. So in this verse we have one of the most remarkable testimonies in the Old Testament to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Almost all the fathers have applied it and scholars like Tertullian, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Isidore, St. Athanasius, St. Basil, St. Gregory. All of them said the Holy Trinity is expressed in verse 6. St. John said all things were made by him. And many scholars said... When St. John in his gospel, chapter 1, said all things were made by him, he was referring to Psalm 33, to this verse. But he is writing it in the highest Christian form. St. Augustine said in verse 6, Heaven represented the apostle." So as if he's saying, by the word of the Lord, the apostles were made, were made strong, were made preachers, were made evangelists. And all the host of them by the breast of his mouth, when God breathed the Holy Spirit in them. So St. Augustine referring the heavens to the apostle. And how the teaching of the word of God made them what they were made them strong evangelists. He said, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, for not by themselves, <coughs> but by the word of God the apostles were righteous, and they were made strong. And all the host of them by the breast of his mouth, all their faith, By his Holy Spirit. Uh, St. Basil says. You should then perceive three things. The father gives the order. The son his word created. And the spirit abides. By the word of the Lord. So the father gives the order. The word. Created the world, And the Holy Spirit abides. Then in verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Here the psalmist was looking at the mighty oceans and understood that they reflected the power of God and the wisdom in creation. And God is showing us exercising of his command of his creation. He said, let water be above the firmament and water under the firmament. And the water under firmament gather together so the land may appear. And this actually what was done in the third day of creation. But some father said, when he said, David said, he gathers water of the sea together as a heap. He is speaking about the splitting of the Red Sea when the Israelites left Egypt sorry, left Egypt, yes, to the Promised Land. So, he is referring to the Exodus of Israel through the Red Sea when the waters were made as a wall into them on the right hand, on the left hand. St. Augustine said he gathered the people of the world together the waters here represent the people of the world to confession of mortified sin, lest through pride they flow too freely. He lays up the deep in storehouses. The, the deep water, that meaning, he kept them in the cavities, very, very deep cavities, as if the deep cavities are storehouses. So the waters of the great deep in in the bottom of the ocean are regarded by David as stored up by God in the cavities of the ocean bed for his own use to be used at some time or in carrying out his purposes. Verse 8 Let all the earth fear the Lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him so in verse 1 if you remember he said rejoice in the Lord you righteous so the exhortation in verse 1 was addressed to whom only to the righteous to, the, to praise the Lord but in verse 8 there is another exhortation to fear the Lord, but it is addressed to all mankind, to the righteous and the ungodly, to the Jews and Gentile, because everyone on earth equally enjoy the benefit of this great glorious work of God. And people should set themselves in a state of humble awe before Him, can see here, he said, "Fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Unfortunately, now people who deny the existence of God, they don't apply this verse. They don't fear God and they don't stand in awe of Him. Fear and awe reverence of divine majesty whose divine perfections are so manifest and revealed in the words of creation. Also, stand in fear and all means be careful not to offend him, because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of God, as St. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 9 For he spoke and it was done, like in the creation. Let the light come, light came. He commanded and it stood fast. God promised life and prosperity only to the faithful. But the ungodly should stand also in awe of him because they are enjoying the creation. Fear and stand in awe also can refer to the worship of God. Usually in the scripture, fear the Lord means worship Him. Like when the deacon says, stand in the fear of God, mean worship Him. The whole duty of human being, as we read in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, fear God and keep His commandments." For this is man's all. Now he is giving uh, Explaining why we should fear him And stand in awe For he spoke The psalmist considered the word of God And its effective power All he did just he spoke He commanded And it stood fast So the lightest word of God Once uttered Became a standing law To which nature absolutely conform. And human being should also conform to his word. Verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The psalmist Already praised God for his moral character In verse 4 and 5 His creative power in verse 6 and 7 Now he addresses the works of providence And his power in ruling against the thoughts The will and action of men God Who is mighty in his creation Of heaven and earth also is mighty in his care for man along the history so history in reality is just an extension of the work of creation and when you study history you can see God's justice on earth and you can see also the promises of His abiding love. If the unrighteous persist on their evil deeds, God intervenes at the right moment, either to turn their evil into blessing for His children or to scatter and put an end to their plans. That's why He said, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. He brought the council of Achitophel against Prophet David to nothing. He did the same to the plan of Haman during the time of Esther against Mordechai and his people. The wisdom of the wicked was always brought to nothing whereas God's plan for salvation always prevailed and stood fast God overthrew the council of nations like the council of the scribes and Pharisees and and Qiyafa, Herod and Pontius Pilate against the Lord Jesus Christ also in history God brought the council of great persecutors like Diocletian against his church to nothing as St. Gregory says often while some puffed up by human wisdom devise the most subtle counsels against the dispensation of God they only carry out the Lord's will so he's saying people plan to destroy the will of God But they end up actually fulfilling the will of God And while they seek to overthrow it They indeed confirm the will of God Like Joseph Sold into Egypt That he might not be lord over his brethren But that very means by sending him to Egypt By this he was made a king and prince to them we read in Isaiah fourteen twenty four the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. Yes, the counsel of the Lord stand for ever. As we read in verse eleven, the counsel of the Lord stands for ever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So the counsel of the Lord stand forever. It is immutable, unchangeable in itself. And the plans of his heart to all generations, which with respect to his own people, are thoughts of peace, grace, and mercy. The plan of God toward his people in all generations are thoughts of peace, grace, and mercy. In verse twelve, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen as his own inheritance. Why? Because God, as we read in verse 10, bring to nothing the counsel of the nation. So for his people, any conspiracy against his people God will destroy. And His plans for his people, will stand forever. That's why blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So David turned from the nations, all the nations, to the chosen people. And what is true for the nation in verse 12 is true for the individual godly people. So, the nation that worships God and under his protection is blessed. This is said to distinguish such nation from those who worship false gods or idols. The nation that always aligns itself with God and his purpose is blessed. The person, the man, who always aligns himself with God and his purpose is blessed. Because we are the positions of God. We belong to him. As he said, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. We are the position of God. We belong to him. We pertain to him. So no one can hurt us without challenging the power of God. Verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. So, God in all his perfections and plans for the nations and ages from generation to generation, God also, his eye is on humanity as individual, on each one of us. His greatness does not exclude his individual interest in everyone from the inhabitants of the earth. All those who worship Him are under His protective eye. He watches over us to protect us, and we enjoy the watchful care and attention of God. The same meaning, the Lord looks from heaven, He sees all the sons of men. Same meaning, verse 14, from the place of His dwelling, He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth from heaven He looks on us all He fashions their heart individually He considers all their works Uh, So no one can escape the eye of God Then in verse 15 He said If God is the one who created us then he knows our heart he knows our heart as God formed man originally as we read in the book of Genesis then he understand what's in my heart so the idea here when he said in verse 15 he fashions their hearts individually the idea of using the word fashions in Arab, Arabic al the fashions here means what? Means, uh, not, not just he created, but means that he formed the heart of all people. And that's why he can see and he knows what is in the heart of every individual. Uh, because the maker of a human heart must understand what is in it and the heart of man is what a man is so God understands all that we do God notice, notice even when we give a cold cup of water to a little child and he said this will not be forgotten no job regardless of of how small it is goes unnoticed of God if it is done to his glory and he will reward us for it then he spoke from verse 16 about the futility of material power verse 16 he said no king is saved by the multitude of an army so if you have a huge army the army cannot save you a mighty man is not delivered by great strength so material strength is an illusion the illusion and deception of material resources is contrasted here with the care of God for his people the king is not saved by greatness of his army like Goliath, with his great strength, could not deliver himself out of the hand of this little youth, David. So, the psalmist understood that human effort alone does not determine events. Saul, as a king, with his army, were chasing David, but they could not kill him. So, God's work and plan in and beyond and sometimes in a set of human effort to accomplish his purpose. And this is the lesson which God at various times and in different manner taught his people that no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Horse was considered at that time the best tool in war. Neither shall the horse deliver any by its great strength. So, as it is written in the 2nd Maccabees, chapter 15 and verse 21, considering the arrival of the multitude, and the various preparations of weapons and the fierceness of the, of the beasts, extending his hand to heaven, Judas the Maccabees, when he saw the arrival of the multitude, various preparation of weapons, and the fierceness of beasts. What did he do? He extended his hand to heaven, called upon the Lord, who works miracles, who gives the victory to those who are worthy, not according to the power of the weapons. Horses at that time is the most advanced military tools. And because there is a God in heaven who governs the affair and destiny of men, even the use of horses, the most effective resources, cannot in themselves determine the outcome. Then, who is the true protector? Not the weapons, not the horse, not the strength of human being. Then the true protector, as we read in verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy. So the psalmist continued to think of God's hand in the world, shaking events, like in the battles of the king, and his care for the individual. The eye of the Lord is in a certain sense upon all. He observes and is aware how every person act, but his eyes rest upon the righteous to protect them, carefully watch over the safety and prosperity of his faithful people. Whosoever therefore would have safety must expect it only from the watchful eyes and almighty hand of God. That is the only protection. The Lord Jesus Christ told us that God cares for the smallest bird. One sparrow will not fall down without permission from God. Then surely he will care for those who honor him those who are made in his image and fear him behold the eyes of the lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his mercy those who truly fear the lord find their hope in his mercy not in their own goodness or in their own righteousness but in the mercies of the lord verse 19 His eyes on them to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. In verse 19 he talks about the protection and deliverance which a man's own strength cannot give but will be provided only by God freely who alone is capable to keep souls from death and deliver those who are in danger or threat. For example famine was catastrophe from which Palestine often suffered and the righteous were kept alive through the time of famine like how God sent Elijah to the widow and the widow during the time of famine actually took care of Elijah and God blessed the flower and the oil in her house. San Augustine says, Whereby shall we be saved? What can save us? Not by might, not by strength, not by power, not by glory, not by a horse. Whereby then? Whither shall I go? Where shall I find whence I may be saved? So, where is salvation? San Augustine says, Seek no long, seek not long, seek not far. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon them that fear Him. So if you fear God, His eyes upon you to protect you. You see that these are the same whom He beholds in His habitation. Those who hope in His mercy, not in their own merits, not in their own strength or righteousness, not in fortitude, nor in a horse, but they hope in his mercy. Verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So these are words of expression of confidence in the Lord. These are the words of the church. Expressing her expectation and faith. Having praised God. God. And considered God's greatness from many angles. Now it is appropriate to simply wait for the Lord. To wait for his protection and deliverance. For his guidance, for his word. Looking to the Lord (coughs) as our help and our shield. We trust in no one and nothing but God. We trust not in armies, not in horses, not in our own strengths. He alone is our dependence. Confident in God's goodwill and in his power to help us, we wait patiently and cheerfully for him to manifest himself in his own good time. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart, shall rejoice in him confidence because we have trusted in his holy name our hearts shall rejoice in him here is the fruit of our confidence and our waiting our souls are always happy because we have trusted in his holy name as he said rejoice in him in the Lord don't rejoice in sin Not in yourselves, not in our boasting. All such rejoicing are evil. But rejoice in the Lord, in His Word, in His person, in His righteousness, in His salvation, in His presence. This joy is an inward joy. Real joy. The joy of the Holy Spirit. Unspeakable. Is not conditional. Does not depend on the outer external circumstances. This is what the psalmist call upon the saints to do. To rejoice in the Lord. He started the psalm by saying, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. And he ended the psalm in the same way. He, in composing the end of psalm, he said, For our hearts shall rejoice in Him, because we have trusted in His holy name. Last verse. which is an earnest prayer let your mercy O Lord be upon us just as we hope in you beautiful prayer the psalmist concludes with a prayer asking God to restore his people with his love the measure of men's hope and trust in God is the measure of his mercy and goodness to them As much as we trust Him, as much we receive mercy from Him. That's why those who have full trust in Him may confidently expect a full and complete deliverance. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, not according to what we deserve, but according to our hope in you. If it's according to what we deserve, we'll get nothing. But give your mercy to us based on how much we hope in you. So, this actually ends Psalm 33. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.